We are coming up on nearly the 100th anniversary of, I think, one of the most striking choices that a Christian athlete has ever made. Actually, the 100th anniversary of that will be the year 2024, and the place will actually be the exact same place that this choice ultimately was made, in Paris, France. The 2024 Summer Games will be held in Paris, France. You have seen, perhaps, the Summer Games be held this year, one year late, in Tokyo, Japan. But nearly 100 years ago, there was a man named Eric Little. He was a man from Scotland. He was a man who was born to missionary parents in China. And at the 1924 Summer Games in Paris, France, he was the favorite to win the 100-yard dash, to win the gold medal, the fastest man in the entire world. He was only a young man in his early 20s. He had already achieved great, significant um, recognition for his running. He was known as the fastest man in Scotland, perhaps in all of Great Britain. Eric Little learned that the qualifying heats for the Olympic final in the 100-yard dash would be held on Sunday. And Eric Little was a conscientious, serious Christian who believed that he could not honor the Lord's Day by competing on Sunday. He did not believe that, consistent with his convictions, he would be able to run a race on the Lord's Day. And so he said no. He said no. He refused to run. And as a result, he did not make the finals. He did not run for gold in the 100-yard dash to be known as the fastest athlete in the world. But I'm not talking actually about that choice. So that was a very dramatic choice that he made. In fact, God, I think, in his own way rewarded him, Eric Little, when he realized that the 100-yard heats would be on a Sunday, already began preparing for the 400-yard dash. And in the 400-yard dash at the Olympics, he won gold, breaking the world record. There was already a little bit of favor that came on him. I'm talking about a different choice that confronted Eric Little. Immediately after the 1924 games in Paris, Eric Little had a choice to make. Do I continue with my running career that right now was just not even in its prime, was was just approaching when he might be expected to be his fastest? Will I try again in the 1928 Olympic Games or will I move to China to be a missionary like my parents were in impoverished conditions in northern China? Eric Little faced that choice. And this morning, we are looking at a passage in Scripture facing another truly remarkable choice that was made by a man named Moses. A man who, as best we know, was not an Olympic caliber athlete, but nonetheless was in a very remarkable position. We read of him in Exodus chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 11, that he was a man who had a choice to make. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We looked at that story last week as we continue our trek through Hebrews chapter 11, looking at this portrait gallery of faith week after week after week. 
We saw that even though he was born to Hebrew parents, they hid him for three months by faith, not fearing the king's commandment. They ultimately hid him away. He was found by the Egyptian princess, the daughter of the very king of Pharaoh, who raised him as her own daughter with all the privileges, as her own son, I should say, with all the privileges that would be in the royal family in Egypt. And we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, the choice that he made. Look with me in verse 24, will you? By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, that is to say he was fully of age, he was 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now look at the next word, choosing. There's a choice choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, the passing, fleeting pleasures of sin, esteeming, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward." What do we learn from the life of Moses about what faith is? The title of the message this morning is By Faith, a Radical Choice. By Faith, a Radical Choice. Friends, this morning, I don't know that any of you will ever be called to make the choice that Moses did. I don't know that you ever will be called to make the exact same choice that Eric Little was confronted with But what I want to assure you of this morning is that every single day in your life, you are making choices similar to the ones that these men did. You are making choices that either will be radical in their faith or will be entirely typical and normal for what is expected of you. And by God's grace, may this morning we see that faith is that which makes radical choices in our day-to-day lives. You see, as we have been understanding this chapter of Hebrews 11, I hope that you have been internalizing, as I hope I have been internalizing, that this chapter is not there for just a nice little picture gallery. It's not just there so we can look and say, oh, isn't that quaint what faith does? Isn't that nice? Just as it happened when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and realized that that chapter on love is not just so that you would have a good passage to read at your wedding. Not something just so that we look up and say, oh, that's so sweet what love is. No, 1 Corinthians 13 was written to some selfish Corinthian believers and by extension to some selfish Christian believers far too often to say your life needs to change. And Hebrews 11 is written to people who needed to have faith restored in their life, faith strengthened in their life, not just so that they could live out a nice Christian experience, but the author of Hebrews is telling them this is the kind of faith that saves you. Do not be deceived. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this context leading up to this chapter says, we are not of them that draw back to perdition, to judgment, to destruction. And friends, the teaching of the Bible is clear. If you draw back, you will be destroyed. He says, we are of them that believe 
to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. What is he saying? These men are exhibiting a faith that saves you. They are exhibiting a kind of faith that if you are a Christian this morning, your faith should emulate. That if you want to follow Jesus Christ, if you want to achieve ultimately the eternal life that he has promised for those who believe on him, that in a real way this faith will look like our faith. Because this is simply a description of the faith that saves us and that continues to be connected to our sanctification in our daily life. Friends, Hebrews 11, I hope, is changing your life the way you live on a daily basis. Now, how would Moses' example of faith change our life? Three aspects of this faith that I want to look at, this choice that Moses made. First of all, this choice involves a conflict. A conflict. Now, to really understand what this choice is and what it involves, you have to know a little bit of Moses' biography. And we looked at that a little bit already last week, but we'll just brush up on it again today. Notice who, he, who Moses was by birth. What ethnicity was Moses by birth? What race would you say of people? He was a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew. He was of the stock of Jacob, Israel. He was ultimately of the family of Levi, the son of Jacob. We know this. Scripture tells us this. And his parents were Hebrews, Amram and Jochebed, as we were introduced to last week. So here, by birth, he is a Hebrew. Now, who were the Hebrews? Hebrews 11 tells us who the Hebrews were in verse 25, that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. That is what needs to be underscored here. This was not a man whose choice was between his race and some other identity, and that was it. His choice was between the people of God and the people who weren't the people of God. You see, by birth... He was born into those who had the promises going all the way back to Abraham. In your seed, in your generations, the entire world will be blessed. And you know that Moses knew of those promises. He had faithful parents. They had no doubt, I have no doubt, that while Moses' mother was nurturing him and nursing him by uh, by loan, if you will, from Pharaoh's daughter, he was being taught the promises of God for the Hebrews. And yet, what was he by family? He was not a Hebrew by family. He was an Egyptian. Why? Because he was being raised in the royal family. He was being raised as the grandson of the Pharaoh, the king. This was his identity. In fact, he, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, you can mark that as a cross-reference in your Bible if you'd like for the next time you read this. Stephen is preaching again to uh, the Jews about the Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And he goes through the ancient Israel background. And here's what he says about Moses. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. What would we say in just a very short phrase? He was educated. 
He was well-educated, he was powerful, he was influential, he was important, he was recognized. He was raised as the grandson of the king. And with it came all those privileges. The conflict in Moses' life was a conflict of identity. Am I a Hebrew or am I an Egyptian? Is my lot in life with God's people or is my lot in life as one of Pharaoh's people? That was fundamentally it. You see here in verse 24, by faith, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That word refused in the Greek literally has the idea of saying no to. It's to say no. It's to deny. He said, I am not Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Who am I? I would rather choose to suffer affliction with the people of God. It was a question of identity. Now, you might be scratching your heads when we read Exodus chapter 2 and say, when did Moses make this choice? Was it when he went to Midian and then came back? No. There's something, I think, in this text that we may have missed that is extremely profound. If you will, turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 2. Hold a finger in Hebrews 11. We'll be back there. But first of all, notice with me Exodus chapter 2. Verse 11, Scripture says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, 40 years old, he was 40 years old, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. Now, if you have the idea in your mind that this was like a tourist trip, let's go out and see how the Hebrews are doing. I just kind of like to go see difficulty. I'll see how my old family, my old ethnic people are doing you'll miss the entire picture here. This was not a tourist trip. And how do we know that? Turn over to Acts chapter 7, again, where we see Stephen giving an inspired account of this life of Moses. In Acts chapter 7, notice what he says. In verse 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote, he slew, he killed the Egyptian. Now listen to this. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them. Why did Moses go out to, the, to see his people, the Hebrews? Because he said, God is going to use me to deliver them. This was not a tourist trip. This was a man who, in Pharaoh's court, said, I'm done being an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. I'm one of God's people. And don't miss this. When he went out to visit them, I think it is a clear implication that he left behind everything about being Pharaoh's daughter. He said, it's time for me to go be a deliverer for them. This is my calling in life. He said no to being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He left the palace. He left it all behind. And intentionally and thoughtfully and carefully, he went and identified with the people of God to be their deliverer as the calling 
of God. Now, you might stop here and say, well, that doesn't look anything like my life. I live a normal life. I live an ordinary life. I haven't been called to deliver a great group of people. That's not what God has called me to do. What can I learn from this? And friend, here's the truth. You, every single day, are choosing what your identity is. You are choosing every single day how you identify to the world. Take just me as one example. If I were to say, just list out my identities as a human being, we could go on for a while. I am a human being, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an attorney. I graduated from a certain university, I graduated from a certain law school, and we could just go on and on. These are my identities. I'm I'm a fan of the Minnesota Twins. We could just say, I have all these identities and so do you. You have an entire list of them. And the question is in your daily choices as an identity, What will you choose? You see, what Moses recognized is that he no longer could could be both. He could not identify with as being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and also identify with the people of God. There came a conflict. And friends, in certain ways, every single day, there is a conflict between your identities. And you can only choose one. Will you identify with the people of God as a follower of Jesus Christ or will you identify as something else? Which one is preeminent? You see, Jesus already told us this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said no man can serve two masters because either he will love the one and hate the other or he will cling to the one and he will despise the other. And his point was this, you cannot serve God and money. If your identity is between being a Christian and between being an employee, a moneymaker, you will run into conflict and you will have to choose which one you will serve. Jesus made this even more striking. Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What is a cross? It's an identity of death. It's an identity of of reproach. It's it's an identity of suffering. He said, you take up that cross and you follow me. He said, you take up my identity as a Christian every single day. He went on to say in Luke 14, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He wasn't saying you have to affirmatively hate the people you love. He's saying this, at least in part, your identity as a Christian in a real sense is above your identity as anything else. Your identity as a Christian is number one. And if that identity conflicts with what the world would expect you to do with any other identity, you say, my identity as a Christian is number one. Friends, you cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in politics. You cannot serve God in power. You cannot serve God in prestige. You cannot serve God in fortune or fame or anything else that the world has to offer. You have to choose. And one day you will, every day, you are choosing that identity for yourself. Am I a Christian? Am I known as a Christian? Am I choosing my identity as a Christian every day? I had a wonderful example of this growing up. 
a father who was at the very top of his field in the practice of law, and yet who consistently and regularly chose his identity as a Christian by saying controversial things, by writing controversial things, when he believed it was necessary to stand for righteousness, and he said, my identity, who you know I am, is as a Christian first and foremost. I've tried to follow that, perhaps in much smaller ways. I remember when it came time to apply for jobs as an attorney, I was, I was forced to come, will I put down that I am a member, that I'm a board member on the Christian legal society of my law firm? Do I want to be known in my identity as a Christian? And I said, I will. I would rather, if, if you don't want to hire me because I'm a Christian, I would rather not work there. I'd rather not be there. Let me be very open. And at my firm, I have tried to be very open about my identity as a Christian above all other things. What does that mean for you? What identities are we struggling with? Are we dealing with? We have to recognize and there will come a conflict. There do come conflicts day after day when my identity as something else would allow me to shut my mouth, not to stand for truth, not to deny myself, not to take on reproach or suffering, and in that moment I will be forced to identify, will I be a Christian in this moment, or will I be something else? We all are confronted with those choices. But notice secondly about Moses, not only was there a conflict, there was a calculation that went into it. A calculation. Notice, I see this here in verse 25. Not only did he choose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but verse 26 tells us that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. This word esteemed has the idea of making a careful judgment. A careful judgment. In other words, he weighed it out in the balances and said, which one do I choose? Let's look at those balances together, shall we? What about the side that Egypt offered, being the son of Pharaoh's daughter in the royal household? We know what came with that. Scripture says the pleasures of sin for a season. You might also just call that the fleeting pleasures, the temporary pleasures of sin. In the royal household, Moses had everything that he could want or desire as being in the royal family. You want it, he could have it. That was one thing that was on the scales. Everything that he could desire. But notice also it says the treasures in Egypt were also on that balance. I was, as I studied this week, I learned something that I had never realized before. A pastor pointed out that... Moses actually wasn't very far off from the time period of King Tutankhamun. King Tut, so we call him in Egypt. Do you know that they were only separated by perhaps 100 or 200 years in time? That if you understand the society that King Tut lived in, you're not that far off from understanding what Moses was turning away from? In the 1920s, King Tut was discovered in this massive tomb, this beautiful tomb lined with gold. You perhaps have seen pictures of King Tut's mask, the gold mask laced with these beautiful things, one of the most famous and beautiful works of art. Did you know that mask weighs over 22 pounds of gold? 22 pounds of gold? Worth, just the gold alone I read is worth, I think, more than $500,000. Just the gold alone. 
Did you know that King Tut was buried in a sarcophagus that had three different layers or levels in it, and the one that he was in was solid gold weighing 240 pounds? 240 pounds of solid gold. The gold itself in this sarcophagus is worth multiple millions of dollars. When you talk about Moses leaving behind the treasures in Egypt, think about the treasures of 240 pounds of solid gold in which they bury their pharaohs. Moses was part of that royal family. Moses had access to all of those treasures, all of those pleasures that he could desire, that he could imagine. And on that side of the balance, he looked at the other side of the balance. And what did he see? Well, what does Hebrews 11 tell us? To suffer affliction, people who were slaves, people who were reproached, people who had no political power, people who were utterly abandoned and hated as Hebrew people. Slaves, that's one thing. Not only that, verse 26 tells us also the reproach of Christ. Did that jump out at you when we read that this morning? Have you ever thought, how did Moses choose the reproach of Christ? Christ didn't live for another 14 or 1500 years. I think there are at least a couple explanations. One of this is that I think simply the author of Hebrews is telling us that he bore a reproach that was just like Christ's. It was Christ's reproach. Christ was the one who left his Father's glory, who left heaven where he knew only worship, where he knew only adoration and love, and emptied himself, the ultimate riches to rags story, to love us. But not only that, I think the author of Hebrews probably has in mind this as well, that in choosing Christ's reproach, Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks every aspect of our Old Testament that Moses is a picture of Jesus Christ in that he came to be a deliverer of the people of God from the bondage of slavery, that he came to lead them to the promised land where God had prepared a place for them, and that in this Jesus Christ is the key that unlocks this picture. Do you remember Paul when he was speaking of the rock that from which water gushed to provide water for the thirsty Israelites? He says in 1 Corinthians 10, that rock was Christ. You say, wait a second, that was a rock. Yeah, it was a rock. It had all the physical properties of a rock. But Paul, looking back to the Old Testament, saw the key to unlock the meaning of that rock was found in Jesus Christ. And he said that was Christ from whom that water came. I think in the same way we see the reproach of Christ being that key that unlocks our understanding of what Moses was in the Old Testament and what he was in God's unfolding drama of redemption. But again, look at those balances. How would you weigh them? Great riches, great pleasures. On the other side, great reproach, great affliction, great suffering as a slave. And Moses looks at the two of them and Scripture tells us he carefully weighed it out. Did you notice again he was a 40-year-old man? He was what they would say in his prime. He wasn't making a rash choice as a young man who just with youthful enthusiasm makes a choice he would live to regret. He wasn't making the choice as an old man who said, I can't, I can't have those pleasures anymore. I can't, I can't enjoy them anymore. Let me give myself to God's calling now at the end of my life. How many people do you talk to? They say, I'll be holy someday. I'll give my life to God someday, but just after, 
I've experienced life. That wasn't Moses. He was in his prime. He said, I'm choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God. I'm choosing that side of the balance. You say, how does that reflect itself in my life? It's simply this. Faith makes conscious, determined choices. That's what faith does. I, my heart goes out to those children who grew up in Christian homes. I grew up in that Christian home. Your parents were godly parents. They sought to train you in the ways of the Lord and build you up. And you believed, and I put that in quotation marks, you believed because intellectually you made a decision to follow Christ. And yet not once in your life truly have you ever experienced the conflict, the conflict of identifying with Christ and suffering for it. Suffering against the, your own desires, your own fleshly desires. Suffering against the reproach of the world. Suffering in some real tangible way. And friends, how many of these children who have believed do we see grow up? And the moment that conflict strikes, they say, I'm done. I'm done. If it comes down to having a nice income, if I can have a nice income and have Christ, okay, I'll have both. But if it comes down to choosing, no thanks. You see, if I can identify with Jesus Christ and still have the romantic relationship I've wanted, still have the respect of the world, still get political power, fine. But if I have to choose, I can't choose Christ. My fear, friend, is that those people do not know what it is to believe. They do not know what it is to be born again by the Spirit of God. Because their choice has not been the choice of faith. The choice that looks at both options and says, no matter how radical, I'm choosing that one. I'm choosing affliction with Christ. I am choosing Christ no matter what. Moses considered all of it. And he consciously chose. J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the 1800s that we have read his books here at this church, he was bemoaning in one of his, I think, writings, the state of the church, the worldliness that it had infected the church even in his day. Christians living like the world, choosing the things of the world day after day. And he wrote these very wonderful words. He says, in short, they, these people, do not put implicit confidence in the word that, words that God has written and spoken. And so do not act upon them. Now listen to this. They do not thoroughly believe in hell and so do not flee from it nor heaven, and so do not seek it, nor the guilt of sin, and so do not turn from it, nor the holiness of God, and so do not fear him, nor their need of Christ, and so do not trust in him, nor love him. They do not feel confidence in God, and so venture nothing for him. Friends, the choice of faith is not that choice that is there when I can have everything that I want and still have Christ as an accompaniment to it. The choice of faith is that, what, is that which looks at everything that considers everything and says, I'm choosing Christ over everything. My father in his book, The Straight Gate, told the story of going evangelizing with a partner who shared the gospel with this woman at the door and they invited her to trust Christ. And she says, no, I can't. She says, I can't give up my tank tops. And the partner that my father was evangelizing was said, no, 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 wait a second. That's not about the 
gospel. That's not about what becoming a Christian is. And of course, theologically, he was dead on. He was absolutely right. Jesus Christ doesn't say, go burn all your tank tops before you become a Christian. That's not what it, the gospel is. But yet this woman knew a lot more truth than she realized. Because she recognized that truly to make the conscious choice of faith, God was putting his finger on something in her life and saying, there's a problem there. Like the rich young ruler when Jesus said to him, do you want to believe in me? Do you want to follow me? Then go give all that you have to the poor and come follow me. Was that man saved in a theological sense or not saved because he didn't give away all his money? No, not really. But when it was a choice of faith to trust in Jesus and give oneself to him as is required in the gospel, that man said, no, that balance tips away from Christ. And I just want to speak to you with those of you who are unconvinced this morning about the claims of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus is and who he said he was. You know what the Bible promises for those who love him. And yet there is something that is holding you back. There is something that is keeping you from being a Christian. There's something on the balance on the other side that says, I'm not all in. I can't be. There's something holding me back. I want to plead with you this morning. Moses made the same kind of calculation and said, reproach with Christ is greater riches than anything on the other side of the balance. It's greater riches. Will you make that same choice of faith this morning? Will you throw yourself entirely into Jesus' camp? Put your eternal destiny solely in his hands. God wants you to carefully consider it. He wants you to count the cost. He wants you to look at the balances. So what caused Moses to make this choice? How are we going to make the choices of identity every day that we're called to make? Not only a conflict in his choice, not only a calculation in his choice, but finally a consideration in his choice a consideration in his choice. Will you look with me in verse 26? Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now he's going to explain it. Why? Because he had respect to the recompense of the reward. You say, okay, that went entirely over my head. That word, respect unto, he had respect unto, it's a really interesting word. It's a word that literally means look away from everything else. That's literally what the word means, to look away from everything else. You say, wait a second. I thought he was considering everything. Now you're saying he looked away from everything else? What does that mean? Let me give you an example. We've been perhaps following the Olympics together in Tokyo. For the last five years, these athletes have been giving themselves entirely to one goal, one goal to win Olympic gold. That's why they're doing it. I read the schedule of Caleb Dressel, if you've been following, one of the most decorated already swimmers in United States history, has won, I think, seven gold medals, has dominated these Olympic games as a swimmer. A young man describing his day getting up, spending two hours in the pool in the morning, lifting weights for two hours, eating, being back in the pool for another two-hour workout in the evening, going to bed, it just regimented, strict schedule. Michael Phelps, the great swimmer, said he would eat eight, eight to 10,000 calories a day. He was burning so much. Eight to 10,000 calories a day. 
You say, what drives Caleb Dressel to do that? I saw this, this um, interview with him. He said, sometimes you lose a little bit of motivation. Sometimes I break down a little bit. But at the end of the day, I know what my goals are. But at the end of the day, I know what my goals are. And so he lives a regimented life for five years so that he can win gold and stand on that podium. Now, friend, if you were to be a friend of Caleb Dressel, who had no idea what the Olympics were, no idea what a gold medal is, and you looked at the way Caleb Dressel was living his life, you'd say, you're an idiot. You're a fool. Why are you living like this? Why don't you go out and have fun like the rest of us do? And Caleb Dressel says, you don't understand. I know what my goals are. I'm looking for gold five years from now, and I'm going to live my life today in light of what I cannot see five years from now. And you've just identified what faith is. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Faith sees things that other people don't see. Faith looks ahead to a reward that the world has no idea of. It's what Paul had in mind when he said in Romans chapter 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. He looked ahead to that reward and he said, That's what I'm living for. You can have everything else. Give me that. He said in Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I'm looking to one thing and I'm looking away from everything else. Friend, what is the gold medal in your life that is changing the way you live today and tomorrow? What is the gold medal that is causing you to look away from everything else in your life and say, I have one goal, and that is the goal I'm going to live for? You see, unless I have that kind of vision of faith, that view, that perspective of faith, don't expect to live to choose your Christian identity when there's a conflict. Don't expect to choose the things of Jesus Christ when there is an easier, culturally more fulfilling, more satisfying route that you can take. It is those who have their eyes fixed centrally on the prize. What God has promised to those who live for him, to those who love him, to those who follow him. You see, friends, that's at the heart of being a Christian. Don't think that the Apostle Paul or some of these other people were some superhuman Christians that you and I cannot possibly live up to. Oh no, you may have a different calling, a much smaller calling in, in our own eyes than these other Christians did. But you operate under the same faith, the same faith that every single day you choose your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ over any other identity that you have because you make a conscious choice that the gold medal in eternal life with Jesus Christ is way more rich, is way more treasure than anything you could have in this life. We never finished that story of Eric Little, did we? There was a choice that he had to make. Would I continue being an Olympic athlete pursuing gold in the 1928 games or would I go be a missionary? You won't be surprised to learn that he gave it up to go be a missionary. 
He served in these squalid conditions, impoverished conditions in northern China. When World War II came around, Japan was coming into China, sweeping into China. He stayed. He was arrested. He was in internment camp. He developed an inoperable brain tumor, and he was dead at 43 years old. They said of him in the prison camp that he was just gave himself wholeheartedly to serve others, to minister to the young people that were there. Just a, 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 an, an overwhelming beacon of light and of optimism and of hope and of the love of Christ in there. One of the Christians that was there said, he said that um, it, it is rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone as I have ever known. One, one witness testified that Eric Little's last words were, it's complete surrender. It's complete surrender. And I was struck when I read a quote that Eric Little gave when he was asked, do you ever regret leaving behind your life, your career as a runner, and going to be a missionary? Listen to what he said. He said, it's natural for a chap to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. A fellow's life counts far more at this missionary work than being an Olympic gold medalist. Do you know what that was? The words of someone who by faith knew what he was living for and valued it and therefore made a radical choice. Friends, you and I are called to make radical choices every single day. May we follow this example of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this radical choice, a choice to leave everything behind, not only to leave everything behind, but to affirmatively take on suffering, affirmatively to take on reproach, the reproach of Christ. Father, that's the eye of faith. It doesn't rely on one's parents' faith. It doesn't rely on the faith that is found in a local church. It doesn't rely on other people's faith. It is the faith that consciously chooses no matter the cost because it has its eye on the reward. Oh, Father, I pray that that faith would be stirred in each of our hearts this morning. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you are one this morning who is uncommitted, you've never given yourself to Christ wholeheartedly, something is holding you back. Are you looking to the reward? Are you looking to what God has promised for you in Christ and choosing that consciously? Young person, has your faith ever become your own? Are you coasting on your parents' faith, on someone else's faith? Have you made the conscious decision that you will follow Christ no matter the cost, that you will choose your identity with him? Perhaps you have made that choice and you're wavering today. You're wondering what would have been if you had followed a different path, a different life. Recognize that the value is in the reward that Jesus has promised to those who follow him. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses and lands. I'd rather 
be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today.